The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Our Bible study is called Clean Hearts tonight, and I want to begin by reading from Psalm 24. But as I read, as I read this portion of Scripture, I want you to know that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus that this scripture is true about you. That this is true about you. And the reason I emphasize that is because sometimes we don't feel um, as though we have clean hands and clean hearts. Again, the title of the Bible study is Clean Hearts. And so from Psalm 24, it says, this is the Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is the part I want you to think about. Who shall ascend the hill or the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then David gives us that pause, that selah. Let's go ahead and pray. So Father, this evening we thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to to lift our voices, to, I know that that some in this room, some that are joining us online, Lord, are are pausing from their busy work week, um, from all that they've, uh, encounter today and anticipate for tomorrow, and we pause in your presence, that because of what Jesus has done, our hands are clean, and because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, our heart is pure before you. And so although, Lord, we desire for that to be a complete reality, we we bask in your presence. And so, Lord, be with us uh, this evening as we study the word. In your name we pray, amen. Our passage tonight, in, um, beginning in Mark 7 and verse 9, but our passage tonight really gives us a glimpse or insight uh, into first, first century religious life. And, and if you ever have opportunity to go to Israel, and, and particularly are in Jerusalem, the Jewish the Jewish belief system, the faith, obviously is, is, is thousands of years old, but it's also alive today. You see representations of that. When you go to your hotel on the, on the Sabbath, which begins on Friday evening at sundown, you'll notice that in your elevator, the elevator just naturally stops at every, at every floor. And if you're in a hurry, you'll need to leave a little bit early. And that is so that nobody has to press the button. It's the, the Sabbath is woven into their life even today. And, and it's interesting if you have a chance to, talk, to speak to any practicing Jewish people, is even subjects such as Sabbath and how to observe it. Is even, there's different opinions on that even today. At the heart of Mark's account tonight is conflict. Uh, it's an ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, um, and Jesus is confronting them, uh, those who follow man-made tradition. And, and his, his, his beef, if you will, is that they did so at neglecting the law. Actually, it's more serious that, than that because Jesus points to 
the Jews um, violating one of the Ten Commandments. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. That's one of the things we're going to look at tonight. I think uh, you'll, you'll leave having a better grasp of that. So Jesus peels away, intentionally peels away at prescribed practices, exposing uh, to the people a, a religious system whose hearts really were not close to God, although they, they should have been. I want you to, to think about Jesus' pushback as a way of liberating people from, from, from the bondage of religion. And, and, and that, that's, I know that might sound uh, uh, a little odd, but that's what he came to do. He came to set us free from attempting to merit, um, merit goodness or righteousness before God. He came to do that on our behalf. His position threatened the status quo. And again, I use the word intentionally, and that's, this is what he came to do was to shake things up and to challenge the religious elite. I think it begs, it begs to question on how did, how did Israel get here? With, with their rich history and God being, bringing them, uh, bringing them to be a people who were not a people, bringing them out of Egypt, working so many miracles on their behalf, giving them a land that was, would be their own, giving them his laws, his precepts. How did we get here? Uh, I mean, how do men, these men who, were dedica- who had dedicated their lives, literally the totality of their lives to the law of God, how do they get to the place where they lay it inside, lay it aside um, in favor of ritual? I want you to think about this. One of the reasons that I believe this is so is that religion tends to focus on the external, on outward performance. There's something within man's nature that gravitates towards things that can be measured towards things that can be accomplished. Practices that I believe usually began with sincere motives, over time lost sight of God. That this is a propensity, this is something that we need to be aware of. That our relationship with God is vital and it is alive and dynamic. And it's something that you and I experience, to be sure. So, so there is the knowing of the things that we need to know But equally important, maybe even more important, it's knowing the one we have come to know and nurturing that relationship. For example, one of the things that I want you to think about uh, tonight is that instead of looking to practices, we look to Christ, to Jesus, and what he's accomplished on our behalf. Another thing I want you to think about is that in Jesus' day, as I alluded to being a reality today, is that there were various uh, interpretations of what it meant uh, to keep the Sabbath. We know that in the Gospels that we're told that Jesus did good on the Sabbath, that he healed people on the Sabbath, that he taught the word on the Sabbath, that he delivered people from the power of evil on the Sabbath. These are all good, very, very good things. However, um, the religious leader's response, and as we get into the gospel maybe even more, we see that their response was to want to eliminate him, to, to, to murder him, to kill him for not following their interpretation of the law. Now, when we think of Mark chapter 7, and I know that it's been a while since we've been here, I, I want to refer back to verse 6. This is reaching back into our last Bible study when we were together, um, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13. Let me read it to you. Jesus is engaging with this religious system, this religious system that I already said that he was in conflict with, that there was this clashing again and again and again over, over the period of his, of his ministry. 
And so he says to these men who would have highly esteemed the prophet Isaiah, well did Isaiah prophesy of your hypocrisy as it is written, and here's the quote, this people honors me with their lips, think outward performance, the external, maybe I remember that's what I said about man's inclination to religion. This people honors me with their lips or with their words. But listen to what he says. Their heart is far from me. Their heart is not near me or close to me. And then verse 7, again, um, Mark chapter 7. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that's at the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight. The idea that Jesus is communicating is that although these individuals observed external forms of worship, they were only going through the motions. They were only following following these rituals to go through the motions, I would say, to be seen by others rather than to please God or because they love God. In verse 7, Jesus interprets Isaiah's prophetic word when he says, Literally, their worship to me, this is God's perspective, their worship to me is empty. It's a sham because they value man's petty rules more than God's words. So tonight we're going to look at three different engagements. We're going to watch Jesus in verses 9 through 13 engage the Pharisees and the scribes. We're going to see him confront them. And then in the second part of our Bible study, we're going to see that he clarifies what he, had just, what he had just communicated to the Pharisees. He's going to clarify that with the people. Now, there is this, this encounter with the religious leaders. I believe that the people are around listening carefully. I also believe that a part of the group of the people are the disciples. And they're listening. And, and, and in some ways, they're not necessarily fully comprehending and lastly, explaining, or time alone with the disciples, he explains uh, what he had taught in verses 17 through 23, which that is that the, it is the condition of our hearts that's primary. You know, in Christianity today, there is the element of the corporate worship where we're together, where, where we know each other, where we, you know, maybe because of where you sit in the sanctuary, especially on the weekend, so many people but you begin to recognize people around you and, and, and you worship together. And you, in, in a sense, there is a, a community in, on a Wednesday night or in a youth group or men's group or women's group or maybe even a growth group. It's something that's shared. But it's also something that is personal. It's also our worship is something that we do uh, alone and on our own. And so I just want you to think about that. So I know it's been a little while since we've been here. I want you to know that the, all that we're discussing tonight has, been, has, been, has begun because the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, came to Jesus. They pointed out that his disciples had not washed their hands. And again, the idea is not anything to do with hygiene and everything to do with pure, something being pure, purely uh, uh, ceremonial. So on the screen, we have conflict results and confrontation. Read with me, if you will, in uh, verse 9. And he, Jesus, said to them, this is the religious leaders, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, exclamation mark in my Bible, the English Standard Version. In verse 10, he points to the scripture. 
When he says here for Moses, he's, say, he's saying that Moses' words were given to him by God. If anybody ever says, you know, but, but where does the scripture claim to be scripture? Here is one example. Jesus is pointing to the scripture as being authoritative and inspired by God. When he says, for Moses said, that is God gave him these words, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 11. But you say, now notice the contrast or the comparison. This is what God says, but this is what you say. This is God's word. This is God's commandment. This is your tradition. This is your ritual. This is your habit. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me or received from me is Corban. And then Mark explains what Corban means. That is, this, this monetary amount has been given or dedicated to God. Verse 12. Then you are no longer you no longer permit him or allow him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void or nullifying the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now remember, I said this first group Jesus is confronting, and he's doing so publicly because their practices have been ingrained into the Jewish life for decades, even centuries. And so this is very important for us to understand. Jesus engages men who were viewed as caretakers, as stewards of God's word, who the people would look to for the interpretation of God's word. In Luke chapter 11, I believe this will be on the screen as well, in verse 46, Jesus replied, and you experts, these are experts of the law, these are the scribes, and you experts in the law, woe to you. That is a declaration of judgment. Woe to you because you load people down with burdens that, th that they can hardly bear carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. I want you to see a system. Individuals, to be sure, groups with special names, you know, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Yeah, that's all a part of it. But it's a system. It's a religious system that is oppressive upon the common man. In Jesus' day, the common man had little hope that he could please God or that God would receive him. In, the, in his mind, the religious leaders were close to God, but he himself was distant from God. And Jesus confronts this mentality. Jesus deals with this way of thinking. Because I believe he wants the common man to see that God opens the door wide for everyone. God opens the door wide for everyone. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Jesus was commonly criticized for was associating with the tax collectors, with the sinners, and even the prostitutes. And it wasn't that he was sanctioning their sin, but that he wanted them to know that there was a way for them to receive forgiveness of their sins and to know God. Verse 9, the word tradition is uh, paradosis. I want you to think of oral teachings about the law that in time came to have the same authority as the law. Oral teachings that were handed down from one generation to another generation. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read a quote by John MacArthur here in a moment. And it grew and it grew and it grew. In fact, I think John MacArthur uh, describes this uh, quite well. 
When he says, over a period of several hundred years, it, that is this body of tradition, had expanded into a mammoth accumulation of religious, moral, legal, practical, and ceremonial regulations that defied comprehension, much less total compliance. It contains such vast amounts of minutiae that even the most learned rabbinical scholars could not master it, either by interpretation or by behavior. I want you to think of something that's burdensome. I want you to think of something that's heavy, something that pulls people down rather than sets them free. Yet the more complex and burdensome it became, the more zealously Jewish legalists revered and propagated it. That's the end of his, of his quote. So Jesus is confronting a system that's hundreds of years old, that has, that has saturated the thinking of the people. And they knew they could not keep the traditions in hopes of keeping the law. As a matter of fact, Jesus says to them, you have a fine way, you have a clever way of nullifying God's word. And then Jesus quotes scripture. Again, I had pointed out that when he, when he speaks of Moses, he's quoting the Bible. The fifth commandment. And then he quotes the penalty for breaking it. Uh, verse 10. Moses said, honor your father and mother. That's from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And then he quotes from Exodus 21, verse 17, which would be the penalty uh, in Israel at that time for not honoring your parents when he says, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. When you hear the word honor, it means to respect. It res means to respect an individual, but it's a little more than that. It means to respect the position or the place of a person. Now, over the course of my life, I can't tell you how many presidents there were. I know some of you think, well, Danny, weren't you around when President Washington was here? Maybe President Abraham. Not quite that old. The earliest president I can remember is President Eisenhower. And then I remember President Kennedy. And I, I, I remember the elections. Now, now, think about this. I saw the elections through the eyes of my father. My father was a union member. The union was happy to tell him, encourage him how to vote. And so he would come home with literature from the union hall. And, and I would, as a young child, I would, at a distance, observe him. Do you know what happened? I would follow in his footsteps when it came to these presidents. And there were some times he would come home and he would say, you know, our guy won. And so then for four years, the Ramos ha family was happy. Maybe we would have a picture of President Kennedy up here on the wall. You know, we, we, we would see him regularly. My dad would give, you know, compliment him. And then sometimes the president from the other political party would win. And we would have these very sad faces. And we wouldn't have his picture on the wall. If we did, it would be turned around and we would see the back of the picture. When my dad said, whether you agree with the president or not, you respect his position. Whether you agree with his policies or not, you respect his position. He would tell me, and this is, my dad was blue collar. He had a fifth grade education. He would say, this is the way our country works. We vote, 
And, and whoever wins the election, they're going to be our president for four years. And if you don't like, son, if you don't like the, pre- the way the president is ruling, it's not him as an individual. It's his policies and, 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 and such. He goes, then you vote in the next election for your candidate, and maybe he will win. The idea about honoring is that you honor the position of the individual, even though you might not agree with them, or even, even though you might not feel in your heart that he, doesn't, he or she doesn't deserve honor, you honor them, listen, because God created the family structure. Think about a couple of things. Honor means to respect the place or the role of your parents. Sadly, sometimes parents don't behave honorably. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes our parents, sometimes Danny Ramos as a parent, hasn't, hasn't been honorable in being a parent. God says, God says to honor the position. I, I know one of the things, and, and obviously admiring and respecting my dad as a hard worker and providing for our family. I remember thinking multiple times, even as a young man, it seems like he wants us to do better than he did. You know, he he didn't have an opportunity to get his education, so then he would tell us it's important to get your education. And sometimes I'm like tripping, like going, well, you didn't get yours, but you want me to get mine? And, And I didn't realize it at the time, but any parent or grandparent in this room understands, or online understands it, we want our children and grandchildren to do better. I remember that as a grown man, my father, had, uh, I as a grown man, my father obviously came to me one day and he says, you know, I've been diagnosed with cancer. And, 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 and we would have these conversations about God and Jesus and eternity. He was diagnosed and given six months to live and pretty much that's the way it worked out. And there was, there was this very interesting dynamic that took place. I was in my 20s. Uh, I was two was working in construction, talking about honoring your parents. You kind of follow their footsteps in some ways. And I remember that I visited him in the hospital one day, and he had asked me to shave him. This is something that I really didn't feel comfortable doing because it was back in the days where, you know, you kind of lather up the, the shaving cream and you, you have a razor. And I remember putting it on him and I go, Dad, you sure you want me to do this? And, and as I was shaving him, it felt as though our roles were reversing that my entire life he had cared for me, and now was time for me to care for him. Because you see, it is a role, it is a position that we honor. I, I feel like I need to say the following. I want you to think of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We're prior to the fall, and Jesus will refer to this particular passage, Prior to the fall, we're told, therefore, because this is true, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So I have given away two daughters in marriage. I would have given away more, but I only had two. And something happened in my relationship with them as well. Remember, my father and I, we exchange positions in our relationship but I also changed my role in my daughter's lives. When I would walk them down the aisle, I would take their hand, I would put it into the hand of their their 
husband, and I would take a step back. And this is very hard for a Hispanic, Hispanic dad. Everything inside of you says protect, provide, watch over. And yet what was taking place symbolically happened in my heart as well. I didn't say I liked it, but this is what happened in my heart as well. I was now giving the care for the protection and the provision of my wife to another man. My daughter was leaving and cleaving. And perhaps one of the biggest things is even though at times I feel like I have something I need to tell them, unless they ask me, I keep these little brown lips closed. Unless they invite me into their home, even though my daughters can come to my house at any time, they have keys, you know, they have keys to the front door. I will not go to their house unless I call and make sure that it's okay. In the leaving and the cleaving, there is that respect and that honor of position. In verse 11, again, Jesus is talking about honoring father and mother. In verse 11, Jesus says, but you say. This is what God's word says, but you say. Let me press pause here. You and I can have very strong opinions about the word of God. We should. I would expect it. But there are secondary issues within this book that good Christians have differing opinions on. As a matter of fact, I would say that if you looked into the origin of many uh, Christian denominations, they're rooted in difference of opinions and interpretations of the Scriptures. These have nothing to do with salvation or the person. We would, we would call them the essentials versus the non-essentials. I'm talking about non-essentials. But we have great churches and great men and women of God who have different opinions on baptism who have great and wonderful opinions on what the end times look like. Okay, I will never allow my personal interpretation of what the Bible says about these non-essentials to allow division to come between me and these other brothers or sisters. Okay, And that's why I think it's important when we hear Jesus say, this is what the scriptures say, but this is what you say to realize when it is us who's saying it. And again, it's contrasted with verse 10 where, where, where Jesus says, Moses said, you say, Moses said, but you say. What comes next is Jesus' complaint against the Pharisees. And I think you understand this with cl- clarity. If a man tells his father and, and mother, Jesus says here, whatever would have been gained for, from me, that is, whatever I would have given to you, this is possibly a son to his father, whatever would have been gained from me, uh, is Corbin. And then Mark explains what Corbin means. He, that is given or dedicated to God. So this monetary amount I am dedicating to God. Corbin was a sum of money vowed to be given to either the temple, ultimately to the Lord or to God. Now listen to this. It's important to understand. The gift could be deferred. That is, it didn't have to be given in the moment. But the obligation would stand. Now remember, this is an example of a tradition of man. So if a man declared money Corbin and later his parents were in need, need of some financial assistance, he was not allowed to revert the vow or to 
break the vow. And so Jesus has a problem with this. In verse 13, Jesus' charge, charge is clear. Thus making void the word of God, that is the commandment, the fifth commandment, by your tradition that you have handed down. It doesn't originate from God. The interpretation of the scripture doesn't originate from God. It originates within this religious system. On the screen, you'll see the, 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 the quote, religion requires clean hands. Remember, this whole thing originated with why didn't Jesus' disciples wash their hands ceremonially? Jesus gives us clean hearts. Religion requires clean hands. Religion measures. Religion weighs. Religion counts. But, but, but how does Jesus' system work? Jesus sees a widow put in the two smallest coins that were minted at the time, and she, he says, he estimates a woman's gift, is more than all that had been given in the treasury. It's important for us to see that Jesus sees things differently. You know, you know, you know sometimes we say, I don't pray the way they pray. I don't sing the way they sing. I don't talk about the scriptures or God the way they do. But you need to be careful because you don't know how God sees what you do. Where you and I would say, well, that's small or not religious enough. God would say, that pleases me. Why? Because he gives us a clean heart. And out of a clean heart, out of a clean heart comes a life that brings him glory and honor. So then religion requires clean hands. Jesus gives us clean hearts. Verse 14. We're making a transition here. It marks a change in audience. And one of the things I want you to see in this change of audience that Jesus is no longer speaking to the religious leaders but speaking to the people is that this is an example of Jesus setting people free. A lot of talk about in the church about being set free. As a matter of fact, a lot of ministries, great ministries, use this, this particular concept or idea as their motto. Jesus come to set us free. Liberty is promised to those who out of a clean heart respond to God. Liberty comes to those who out of a pure heart, a heart that God has cleansed, God has made pure, comes a life that is pleasing to God. On the screen you'll see John uh, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, these are those who had believed or trusted in him, and he says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, my, my followers, my students. Um, you are mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I believe that as Jesus engages the second group, that is the people, he wants to see the bondage and the oppression of a religious system fall by the wayside. That is his goal. It was his goal 2,000 years ago, and I believe even tonight it's his goal. Uh, it's his goal as we gather here this evening. So let's look at verse uh, 14, uh, conflict results in clarification. And he called the people to him again. Now he's initiating this. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. Remember, the concern was that the disciples would eat with uncleansed hands and that they would be rendered defiled. Another way to say what Jesus just said is that food does not defile a person. Continuing on in verse 15. 
But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, in my Bible, there's no verse 16, but I included it. It's not in the earliest manuscripts, um, but in verse 16 it says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So back to verse 14. He says, Hear me. Hear me. This is the word Shema. Hear what I'm saying with the intent of obeying. It's just not like hearing somebody speak, but lean in, Jesus says. Pay attention and hear me with the intent of this word setting you free, of liberating you, of causing you to see that God's arms are open to you and not restrictive. And he also says in verse 14, and understand or comprehend. Both of these terms are imperative or commands. Jesus wanted the people to know that that those who had spoke on God's behalf were wrong. The religious system was wrong. This would have been very, this would have created conflict within the hearts of his hearers. Please know too that there's an urgency in Jesus' words. Listen. For those of us who come to Christ and have given our lives to him, we are to experience freedom and liberty. We are to know that beyond the shadow of a doubt, everything that God has required has been completely and totally met in Christ Jesus. Our eyes are focused on Christ because he is our life. He is the source of our life. And he willingly gives himself to you so that you might be set free. Verse 15. This would have been shocking, even revolutionary to Jesus' hearers. Ceremonially, unclean hands did not defile. This is what they've been taught their whole life for generations. He says, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. Jesus is bringing new covenant truth to Old Testament people. Now, you know you are new covenant people. When you take the the wafer, when you take the juice, it reminds you that you are new covenant people. You are no longer under law. That law has been inscribed on your heart. Your nature and your heart have been changed and transformed and will continue to be progressively changed and transformed. And you are becoming becoming more and more like Christ in your character and your nature. In Acts chapter 15, it's called the Council of Jerusalem. While at Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are are watching something that it is exploding. Jew and Gentile worship together. Slave and master worship together. People who outside of the church, in the culture around them, would have had nothing to do with each other are are living this, this thriving life. Again, having laid aside all their differences and then some Jews came down from Jerusalem and were requiring, requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised. Again, an external, outward expression. Luke tells us in Acts 15, beginning in verse 7, And after there had been much debate, 
I would have expected there to be volume in the discussion. Peter stood up. That is, he was to speak. And he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them, that is, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And I believe this is reference to when Peter, Peter was preaching at Cornelius' house. And he's saying, the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit. While I was preaching to them, I observed with these eyes, as, those, as is, was the case with those with me, that God poured out his Spirit upon the Gentiles. God broke down the wall that separated these two groups, and he brought them together, and he gave them the Spirit, and he set them free. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to a test? Listen, this is an important part here. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says, Take the yoke off of them. Don't put a yoke on them. Set them free. And you and I have been set free from rules and regulations and do this and don't do this. And we have been given the Spirit to, as our nature changed, respond to what Christ has done. There's a hymn called Loving Constraint, Love Constraining to Obedience. It was written in 1772 by William Cooper. I want to read to you a couple of lines. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So our next group are going to be the disciples, conflict, results, and explanation. The the following words are spoken to a third group of people, Jesus' closest followers. I believe that it is at a different time of the same day, perhaps the evening. Read with me, if you will, in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, that is, the people would have been outside, those who had just previously spoken to, his disciples asked him about the parable or the teaching. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? He's a little strict, I think. He's a, he's, a, he's, a little, he's a little hard on them. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Again, this is purely a reference to food. Since it enters not into his heart, but, it, but his stomach, and is expelled. Math, and Mark gives us an additional information here. Having, having written this uh, years at, later, thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. All these things come from within. We're almost done. The religious leaders washed the hands. The religious leaders didn't come in contact in the marketplace with those who might render them unclean. But the religious leaders' hearts 
rejected Christ, and thus forth rejected God. A couple of thoughts and we'll be done. You know that when we read the word heart here, that we're to think of the seat of man's mental, emotional, and spiritual being, who man is apart from his physical body. One can be religious without having a changed heart. Jesus would tell Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again. The Spirit of God will come into your life. And all of these rules and regulations that you're attempting to follow, all of these these things that we measure and weigh, and, and, and I did this yesterday and I did this last weekend, all of these things will be dealt with once and for all at the cross. All of these things you will be set free from. Matthew's gospel gives just a bit of insight. We're in chapter 15, verse 12. We're told of Jesus' disciples. It says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I bet they were. I believe that Jesus is in, this was Jesus' intent, was to offend, was to challenge, was to turn over tables. He wanted to shake them up. We close with this idea. Notice what the Lord says about the heart and sin. All these evil things come from within. That might keep a person up at night, might it? I don't know about you, but, but this list of sin keeps me very close to the cross. You see, even though I have a new nature or heart, I still recognize that in my life I have an inclination to evil. I have a propensity. So that keeps me close to Jesus, not close to rules and regulations. I must surrender to the Spirit to confess sin, but also to receive forgiveness that God offers freely. Jesus changes our hearts or the source of our thoughts, our actions, and our words. I want to close with one verse from Psalm 51, verse 10. This too should be on the screen and will be done. Where David says, after, after his sin with Bathsheba, likely... He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.